Last week after service, I talked to Jerry and Nancy, and Nancy uh, told me that they donated a clock to put in this room, if you saw it right there. And I, I couldn't figure out if that was like a hint. <laughs> Preacher? <laughs> that was a beautiful clock. Thank you, guys. I don't know if it's going to change the sermon length or not. I can't promise anything. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Well, we're going to continue this morning in our series in First Peter. We call it Stand Firm because the, the church of Christ, as we hold on to God and His Word and the power of the Spirit, we are like this lighthouse in a world where the, the waves are beating against us. Uh, a stormy world and, and we're called to stand and to stand firm. How do we stand firm in this crazy, topsy-turvy world of of pain and, and confusion and outright suffering. Sometimes, whether it's the general suffering we read about or suffering in our own lives. How do we stand firm? Maybe you came in wrestling with that this morning. How do I stand firm today as I leave this place? Peter continues to instruct us in that. As I looked at what he writes in First Peter 4, I thought one way that will help the believer in Christ stand firm in this world is if we live our lives with all the urgency of a junk email headline. Let me say it again, because you didn't see that coming. If we live our lives with all the urgency of a junk email headline, let me tell you some real headlines in my junk email box this week. Too much is at stake. Critical deadline. BOGO ends tonight. Don't miss out. Get yours before they're gone. No time to waste. Six hours left. The president needs you. <laughs> they're all there. What if we lived our lives with the urgency of a junk email headline? The urgency does not come from a junk email headline, though. It comes right out of God's Word. We see it in the center of our passage today, chapter 4, verse 7. You want to talk about urgency? Real urgency? Listen to what 4, 7 says. The end of all things is at hand. Some translations say near. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You want to live with urgency, you grab onto that first part of that verse there. The end of all things is near. We are teetering on the brink of eternity. If we really believe that, that leads to an urgency in our lives that will overcome complacency. We live on the brink of eternity. And what this does is, is that's right in the middle, we're going to see before it, in verses 1 through 6, it gives us a new attitude towards life. And after that verse, we're going to see it, it creates new actions in the life of the believer. New attitude, new actions. I want to start with the new attitude. If we believe we are teetering on the brink of eternity, it's going to give us a new attitude. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to look first at the cross. We're going to look two places that are going to help us with our attitude as we walk through this world. One is the cross, the other is the coming judgment. That's a tension that we as believers got to keep in front of us that's going to give us that new attitude. 4 verse 1, since therefore, 
Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. I want to pause right there because he's saying, look, when you look at the cross, Jesus is not only your Savior, believer. That is true, and that's a glorious truth we rest in. He is, he is also our example as we suffer in this world. And He gives us the power to follow in His footsteps as we walk in faith by the Spirit. He's our Savior, but He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. So it's a military picture. Before you go out to battle, you armor up, just like we read in Ephesians 6 when we went through that book. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking as Christ, as He suffered. What was it? We'll talk about it more in just a moment. But He goes on, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What I see here is there is to be a before Christ and after Christ in the life of the believer. And if we are walking in the Spirit, they are not to look the same. There is to be a break that happens. And and when he says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, most believe that what he's focusing on here is the fact that When you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you trust in His death and resurrection for your sins, you're actually united with Christ at that point. If you've trusted in Christ, when He died to sin, you died to sin. That means it's no longer your master. You may choose to sin, but it's not your master like it used to be. When He died to sin, you died to sin. And beyond that, when He rose again, you rose again as well to a new life. Of victory. That's why he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you're united with Christ, it, it brings a change. Now, we've got to realize that and live as though it's true. That's a choice we make every day. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, 11, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Some translations don't say consider. They say reckon. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I grew up using that word reckon a lot in Ohio. You're going to be going to Taco Bell later on, I reckon. (laughs) That's one of my favorite fast food restaurants, if you didn't know. In the Bible, it also has a slightly different meaning. It means to, to, to count something as true. To count it as though it is true. So, as the believer, it's not enough that you died with Christ and, and rose again with Him, you got to wake up every day and reckon that to be true. What if we woke up every morning and said, because of what Christ did, I am dead to sin. I do not have to give in to temptation today. If I walk in His power and the power of the Spirit, I can overcome those temptations. Now, let's be real. And the New Testament's real too. Do we fall? Yes. But in Christ, we have the ability to repent and get back up. We don't have to stay there in that old way of life anymore. And it's not just that I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to God in Christ. Just like Jesus walked out of his tomb, I started a brand new life. So it's not just saying no to the wrong thing. Some people think that's all the Christian life is. That's that's so boring. If that's all you're doing, it's saying yes to all the right things. Walking in the the fullness that he came to bring us. So we've got to reckon that to be true. 
Union with Christ is the main foundational thing, okay? You don't have that, none of the rest of this matters. But he also says we have to have the same way of thinking as Christ did when he suffered. The same attitude, some translations say. Attitude is important. I was reading through my, my ninth grader, Jaden's syllabi this week, about five or six of them, because you've got to read them and sign off of them and, on them. And uh, one of his teachers said this in the, in the syllabus, no stinky attitudes or anything else that stinks. <laughs> There's a guy that knows junior high and high school boys. I, I was one. No stinky attitudes and nothing else that stinks. And I, I think about what he put in there, no stinky attitudes. And I think, man, sometimes, especially when we start going through hard times, is it not true? We get stinky attitudes. We get bitter. We get hostile. We get edgy. We, we get angry. And in the face of that, Peter says, uh-uh, you keep the same attitude as Christ when he suffered. No stinky attitudes when you suffer, believers say. So, so great. What kind of attitude did Christ have? I'm going to try to make it real specific because I had to think about it for me. Like, what kind of attitude did Christ have? Now, I'll admit, mine does not always line up with this when I'm going through something hard. But here's what the goal is in the power of the Spirit. Number one, he trusted the Father wholeheartedly, even on that cross. And so the first question we've got to ask is, when we walk through suffering, do I trust God wholeheartedly, even in the middle of this? Because Jesus did. He trusted his Father. Second, he committed to obey his Father no matter what. No matter what. This is an important one, because when we start to suffer, we start to feel like we're entitled to a little sin. If I'm going through this anyways, man, I'm just going to do what I want. Uh-uh, not if you're a believer in Christ, you, you follow his footsteps. What if he had done that? I'm out of here. I'm calling down the angels. And... No, he, he, he was committed to fo follow his father to the bitter end. It was only through that path that it led to his resurrection. Are we committed to obey in the middle of our suffering? Are we ready to just short circuit our walk? Third, Hebrews talks about he endured the cross with the joy set before him. He had a joy, and we talked last week, joy is different than happiness. It's not this feeling that's, yeah, joy is a choice. And you say, where did his joy come from on the cross? Well, it came from two things at least. One, he knew that he was going to be vindicated, that coming out the other side, he was going to be right next to his father again, and that kept him going kept him going. And the believer can say the same thing too. No matter what I walk through in this world, one day I'm going to walk into that unfading inheritance. And all this suffering will look like just a blip on the radar. I'm going to keep on keeping on. That's why I can have joy. But I think his joy went another way too, which related to this last, last point of his attitude. He had a sacrificial love for others as he suffered. As he suffered. One of my favorite Jars of Clay songs from their original album. It first came out while I was working at Best Buy. And it was one of the first Christian albums that played on uh, radio everywhere. And there was a song on there called Liquid. 
It was about the cross. It was about the blood. And there were some lyrics in there that, that always haunted me. It, it was focused in on the cross. And the lyrics said, arms nailed down. Are you telling me something? Eyes turned out. Are you looking for someone? Those lyrics have never escaped me because we know. He was looking for someone. He came to die for you and me. He came to die for the lost. Even though it cost him his life. Sacrificial love for others. Oswald Chambers and Arnie Flegel were two men that wrote about suffering as, as an oven. And they compared our lives to dough. And they brought out this, sometimes in the life of the believer, suffering is the oven that makes that dough into bread that is then able to feed others around us who are also suffering. How, how many of you know that? Some of the believers that have had the biggest impact in your life are those who have walked through the darkest nights of the soul. Who have walked through the flames and the floods and they're still walking with Jesus. And because of that, they have this wonderful bread to share with you. Their faith has been tested and it gives you hope that yes, I too can, can hold on. But here's the question. Am I willing to allow God to do that in my suffering? Am I willing to have that bigger mindset? Because it's so easy what? To just look inside. And look at how it affects me. But he says, look up, look up. There's others that need what I'm working in your life. One, one, one man put it this way. Sometimes it's, it's the rose that's crushed that offers the sweetest aroma. So keep that in mind. Here, here's the four things, just in summary, if you're wanting to write down Jesus' attitude during suffering that we're supposed to have. He trusted the Father committed to obey Him no matter what. He did it for the joy set before Him, and He had a sacrificial love for others. But I also want to say this. If we love Christ and look at Him through the eyes of faith on the cross, we, we see Him there, and through the eyes of faith, look in, into His eyes, it should change how we feel about sin. It should change how I feel when that Temptation comes across my, my path this afternoon. Sin was what our Savior had upon that led to His death, right? That, that should change how I feel about sin. Warren Wearsby said it this way, If a vicious criminal stabbed your child to death, would you preserve that knife in a glass case on your mantle? I doubt it. You would never want to see that knife again. Think of how the Father must feel about sin. That should impact the way we feel about sin. Now all of us, right away, we hear that, and the Holy Spirit starts working. We can... We could say, whoa, he's convicting me about some stuff in my life. We're all on that journey. We can relate to the guy that went looking for churches, and he couldn't find a church. And then he got to one after church, after church, after church, and he heard the, the pastor say this in a prayer. We have left undone the things we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. 
The guy sat there and said, ah, my crowd at last. <laughs> How many of us relate to that? We're, we're not sitting here with a bunch of perfect people. We're, we're in process. Okay, so it is a journey. Realize that. Don't beat yourself up if you're on that journey. But if your life is a consistent trajectory of doing whatever the heck you want, despite how God and Christ feel about it, you better take a close look inside. Because the flip side of being on a journey is some of the stuff that's written in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. And I confess, I don't know all that it means, but I don't want to be anywhere near this. He writes, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Only the Lord knows your status before him. If you have repented and trusted Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God. All I'm saying as a messenger of the Bible is if your life is one solid trajectory of sin and not caring what God thinks, take a close look today. Ask yourself, have I truly come to the Savior? How can I so easily trample on His sacrifice? One of the most important questions we will ever wrestle with. That leads to the, the next section here. Verse 3, he's going to compare the past life that these believers used to live in. And as we read this, some of us will say, yeah, I, that, that was me. That was me before I came to Christ. Look at verse 3. For the time that his past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, you had enough time to do what non-believers do in your, in your life before Christ. That, that time has passed. That ship has sailed. How did you used to live before Christ? You lived in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You did whatever you felt like. And I look at that list, and I think a lot of that stuff, if, if you look at it, what I see, I don't know if you see it, it seems to me like an attempt to escape. Like if you believe you're just a product of random chance and there is no eternal destiny, that leads to a deep darkness in your soul. I have no lasting purpose here and the best I can do here is try to escape that gnawing sense of emptiness. And, and that's what happens with a lot of our sin before Christ. We're just trying to escape it. Whether it's sex or, or drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, it's an escape. Something happens when you walk out of that life and, and your friends that used to walk it with you. Verse 4, it says, With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. 
Maybe some of you have experienced that, the, the mocking that comes as you say, no, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I now walk with Christ. And you've seen people who swore they were your friends now turn their back on you and, and mock you. I like what one man said. He said, they don't think it's strange when people wreck their bodies, destroy their homes, and ruin their lives by running from one sin to another. But let a drunkard become sober or an immoral person pure, and the family thinks he's lost his mind. <laughs> do all that other stuff, but you come to Jesus, you're nuts. Why? It's because of a verse Lemuel shared on Facebook this week. John 3.20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. It's convicting to folks that do not want to come to Christ and follow him. We talked a while back about there's different insects with different responses to light. You flip the light on, and what do the roaches do? <laughs> and you flip that light on the back porch, and what do the moths do? Listen, the picture here is before Christ, we all used to be roaches, okay? Light comes on, Phew, I don't want to be convicted. I want to do what I want to do. But after Christ, we're to be like the moths. <laughs> Come to that light, surround it. And sometimes the roaches don't like the moths, but we've got to stay steadfast. Sometimes what wins over the roaches is our walk with Christ and that changed life. Sometimes God uses that. I read about a, a Broadway star named Bill McGuire. He was big into the Broadway scene. And you can look up on Google some of the shows he was in back in the day. But he also got into the sinful side of that lifestyle and some of the after parties. But during that whole season of his life, there was a group of believers that, that started speaking into his life and witnessing. And he started meeting with them. And they started reading the New Testament to him. And he's looking at his lifestyle and looking what the Bible says and says something needs to change here. And yet he was still in that tug of war. And one night he was at one of those after parties. And he looked around and he just started bawling. In the middle of this party, all this sinful, worldly, kind of fun. One of his friends looked at him and said, hey man, what's wrong? And Bill McGuire said, we are. We are wrong. This is wrong. Everything, our whole lifestyle is wrong. And to the amazement of everybody in that party, he cried out, Jesus is the answer. His life changed that day. He found what really mattered. Instead of escaping, he's going to shift into a life that's now investing in eternity. See, if you believe this life is all there is, of course you're going to do whatever you want and just try to escape. But if you believe there's an eternity, and especially if you believe there's a judge that we're all going to stand before, you're going to want to invest in that eternity. First by coming to Christ in faith and then living for him. That's why it says in verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It's not popular preaching these days, but God is the judge of the universe. That has not changed. Our world may have changed, but that has not changed. In fact, the New Testament teaches he, he committed that judgment to his son, Jesus Christ, and says things like, we'll give account for every careless word. 
that was spoken. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you see wisdom evaporating out of our society, trace it back to the first part. The fear of the Lord is disappearing as well. But listen, whether we believe there's a judge there or not, he is. That ought to shape the way we live our lives. Rather than escaping, we come in faith for him to cover our sins through Jesus, and then we live for him. It will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. James 5.8 You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He is coming. He is coming. You talk about something that brings an urgency to your life. Think of all Jesus' parables. You want to be the servant that, that, that's awake and, and dressed and, and working. You want to be the one that's taking the talents He's given you and investing them. You want to be the, the, the lady with the oil in her lamp because He's coming. It, it brings an urgency and it, it sets us to living for what really matters. What really matters. This world lies to us about what really matters, does it not? Finances is at the top of the list. This world tells us, build that bank account, build that bank account. How many of you have seen Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford? Great movie and uh, powerful. There's one scene in there. I'm going to, this is a spoiler alert if you haven't seen it and you want to plug your ears. It's been long enough though. Okay. Well, at the, at the end of the movie, Harrison Ford, he's this character. He's come up to the Alaska area with many other gold seekers. Well, he makes it clear he's not looking for gold. He's looking for something else. Years earlier, uh, he, w- he was with his wife, and their son Timmy had died from a fever. And eventually it became hard for him and his wife to even talk in the aftermath of it. So he goes up there looking for some kind of inner peace. And he goes up there, and near the end of the movie, he, he partners with Buck, the dog, who's the main dog character in the, in the story, and they go way up north, and they find this river full of gold, full of gold. He's just pulling out nuggets this big, and they're loading up their, their basket and everything. But after being up there for a while, there's, there's this great scene where he, he, he's getting ready to, to head back down to be with his wife. He's found what he's looking for inside. And in this scene, he is literally taking gold out of his basket and throwing it back in the river. <laughs> and, and there's a part of you that, that winces. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> he keeps just enough. He says, groceries for a lifetime. What, what else could a man need? And there's a part of you that, the part that winces, but there's this other part that admires a man who's figured out that ain't where it's at. There's more to life than money, and he senses freedom as he's just chucking gold in the river. There's more to life than what this world tells us. And really, the biggest decision each one of us needs to make is the decision to accept or reject Christ by faith. Because heaven and hell lie in the balance for eternity. Have you made that choice to accept Christ? C.S. Lewis said it this way, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. 
Because all that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Listen, if God's drawn you and you respond, you come all the way and bow at the cross. Accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and settle it today. Because no matter what this world does to you, for, for Peter's crowd, it, it wasn't going to be just people making fun of them. Some of them would die because they stood for Jesus. And the world would look at them and say, look at those fools. <laughs> they gave it all up for some guy that died on a cross. Fools. But what's God's perspective on the matter? Verse 6, Peter says, This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. I, remember, I believe what Peter's saying here when he says that's why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, they, they had some among them who had already passed away, maybe due to persecution. But Peter's reminding them, hey, the gospel was preached to them and they accepted it before they died. That Though judged in the flesh, yeah, they died physically like we all do because of the curse. Though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit, the way God does. What's he saying? This ain't all there is. And whatever the world thinks about that sacrifice, those dead believers are better off than living unbelievers. Behooves us to ask which side of that equation we're on. And this leads to the hub verse, the, the verse that I said would spark this urgency. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore be self-controlled, and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I like the application. A lot of people talk about the end of all things being near. What, what do we do with that? He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. He says, as things draw to an end, keep the communication lines open with your Father. That is one of the most important things you can do if you're going to stand firm in this crazy world. Some of you are too young to remember it. Some of you remember back in the day you had a landline. And if somebody was on it, it would get busy. And, and somebody would be like, hey, get off the phone. I got a job, a call coming from work. Keep the line open, right? Now today, you can get two, three, four calls right here, but back then, you had to keep that line open for those important calls. That's what Peter's saying to the believers. Keep the line open with God. Do not get so distracted, discouraged, off track with what's going on in this world that that line gets clogged. Keep that communication line open at all costs. When he says self-controlled and sober-minded, what he's getting at is pictured in the Gospel of Mark. You remember the demoniac that was running around in the, among the tombstones and nobody could capture him even with chains. He'd break them and he's out there and the people are all, all scared. And then Jesus shows up and casts that demon out. And it says he was sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind. That's the same word. He says we need to have that same right mind. Don't get in a frenzy. Sit at the feet of Jesus. He's greater. He's greater. I love that the, the, the people knew the power of that demon. They knew it so well that when Jesus kicked the demon out, they didn't even want Jesus sticking around because they said, that demon, 
Look what he did, and this guy kicked him out. How strong must he be? And what scared them gives us hope, because that's our Savior. That's our Savior that told those demons to, to get to packing. Keep, keep your mind on that. That's part of what we got to do to stay clear-minded. Keep our minds on Jesus. I, I spent some time in the Gospels this week. I encourage that regularly in our lives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Remember who Jesus is. I love His power on display. I think about a man named Jairus and his daughter. You remember, they called Jesus, and, and there were people there that looked at the situation one way. They, they told Jairus, don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. She's, she's dead. <laughs> I love the next line. It says, Jesus ignored them. Because <laughs> sometimes this world will tell you something that Jesus is like, that's how you think it is, but you didn't factor me into the equation. And then he looks at those parents and he says, don't be afraid. Just believe. There are times in our lives where I think he's saying that to us. Hey, don't be afraid. Just believe. I know it's hard to see right now, but I got this. <laughs> he went and raised that little girl from the dead. I'm not saying he's going to do that in every situation. He can. But I am saying he's the same Jesus in whatever situation you're in the middle of. And I love the, the disciples. Peter, <laughs> by having a clear head, he is a guy like all of us. That, that was a process, right? <laughs> but I don't think he ever forgot a moment on a stormy lake where, where Jesus was sleeping and the disciples are freaking out. And then they wake him up and, and he calms it all. And they just stand there looking like, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. I said, that's our Lord. You want to have a clear head in this crazy world, keep your eyes of faith on Him and keep the line of communication open in prayer. Pray without ceasing, as Paul said. Think about that, that line of communication and one last call of the wild scene that comes to mind. There was a, a mail run, a dog sled that, that ran through up there and hundreds of miles. And I love what the... The mailman says to his sidekick, he keeps reminding her, he says, we don't just deliver mail, we deliver lives. We deliver lives. And I love the way he valued his job. And I think about if that's true for the mail up there, how important is it that we keep this line of communication open? It's not just some ritual. It's our oxygen as we pray to our Father. It's our lifeline. One last thing on this theme as we keep this communication going. I'm like the rest of you. Sometimes I get weary in the middle of this craziness out here. All the questions, all the unknowns. Sometimes I get discouraged. Sometimes I wake up at night. There's a night like that this week. Three in the morning, I just had to get up and pray. It was just weighing on me. Last night, Carolyn and I prayed at our, the foot of our bed because of the same thing. But one thing is jumping out at me. So when Jesus talks about, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Throughout my life with God, a lot of times I focus on the first time coming, like when I first trusted in Christ for me, that's when I was six. But there's another part of that. It says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Right? And listen, 
when you share a yoke with somebody, if you're an ox and you share it with another ox, that ain't just a momentary one-time coming. You know what happens when you share a yoke? You start walking with that other one because you're yoked together. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, it's not just that you came one time when you were a kid. It's this lifelong journey of walking with him, listening to him through his word and, and following him. And that's where the relationship happens. That's where the power comes. So that's the urgency of prayer. We talked about new attitude, urgency of prayer. Last, I want to talk to you about well, how does this play out in new actions among God's people? Verse 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. You say, now why are you talking about actions? I always thought of love as some emotion. Not usually in the Bible, it's a choice. Agape love is a choice to put the good of another ahead of yourself. So when he says, love one another earnestly, it is a choice. And, and he doesn't just say, love one another, right? How does he say to do it? Earnestly. That word earnestly is really cool. It means stretched. It would be used in Greek of a, an athlete's muscles as he was reaching for the finish line with everything he got. Those muscles were stretched. Or, or a horse's neck as he full gallop. The stretching of those muscles. He says, love one another that way with, with all you've got. Earnestly. That should characterize the church as we love one another. And, and I thought about it like, man, love, if you picture it kind of as this, this uh, trampoline mat. Like we got a new trampoline pad for our trampoline because it, it, our last one broke and we got it in the mail. And if you just take the trampoline mat out and, and put it on the grass and I bounce on it, it's, it's not much fun. It doesn't have any bounce. In order for that thing to have bounce in life to it, you got to stretch it. And that's what this puppy's for. And this is not easy. You take this and you take the springs, about 70 of them, and you hook it to the mat and then you... And I'm telling you, by the end, when you stretch it on one side and the other, you're ready for bed. But it's all that stretching and all that tension that brings the bounce and the life to that trampoline, Okay. And I thought about love. What brings the bounce in life to love? And we could say many things, but Peter's going to talk about two springs that we need to have in our lives that, that bring the bounce in life to love in the church and in the world. Those two things are forgiveness. Forgiveness and service to one another. Let me talk about forgiveness. He says, loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. I saw this on display this week at our house. Earlier in the week, uh, Evan had his buddy over, and they were playing in the backyard, and his buddy didn't realize how close he was, and, and he took a racket, a uh, racquetball racket, and full, full speed ahead, just bam! Evan had a goose egg that was about the size of a golf ball to start with. And things kind of ended in a hurry because Evan had to get taken care of and, and the other boy went home. And the next night we had our small group over and, and Evan had a goose egg. So it came up, what, you know, what happened to your head or whatever. But 
and Quentin apologized and all that stuff. But I love when, when some of the other kids were just kind of asking about it. They weren't making a big deal out of it or anything. But, but Evan, he stepped in there. I found out about this later. And he said, it's okay, guys. It was just an accident. And he kind of went to the plate for his buddy that had accidentally hit him with the rack. He actually invited him to the small group. And he came. And I thought, man, that's, that's two kids and... The issues get bigger and more complicated as we're grown-ups, but that's the essence of it, right? What, what was he saying? Hey, I know he hurt me, but he's my buddy. It's okay. It was just an accident. And my, our relationship means more than what happened last night. Oh, man, there's some of us grown-ups that, that need to bring some of that into our relationships. I know you hurt me. Our relationship means more than that moment in time. I forgive you. As far as I'm concerned, I'm going to do my part to, to forgive you and, and restore that. So it involves forgiveness, but there's another spring. It's serving each other. Action. Love in action. DC Talk, if you grew up on like I did, love is a... Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Check it out. Love is a verb. Love is a verb. What's it look like? He says, verse 9, show hospitality to one another. Hospitality means love of strangers. Open our homes, open our lives, open our schedules so that we can grow relationships with each other. I would love for that to spread through this church, not just at events that are announced up here, but what if everybody in this church just said, hey, is there one person or one family I can reach out to and start to build those hospitality ties? Show hospitality to one another, but not just hospitality. He says, without grumbling. <laughs> you guys have heard me share this story before <laughs> about the little guy when the family has the people from church over for dinner and she asked little the mom asked little Billy to pray and he said what do I pray and she says just pray pray what I prayed before they got here and he says dear Lord why in the world did I invite all these people over to my house <laughs> whoops <laughs> Offer hospitality without grumbling, do it with a, a joyful heart. And I think of the root of that for the Christian. Think of what the Trinity invites us into. You talk about hospitality, like invite us into their relationship, a relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now pass it on, pass it on. Hospitality is one way we show that, that love. People should not only hear from us when things are wrong. I, I, I read a story about a, a guy at a church. He had been there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, and one week he, he wore a hat. And the deacons came up to him and said, Sir, we don't wear hats. And, and uh, shortly after that, the pastor came up and said, Hey, just want to make sure you know our policy about hats. And he said, Oh, I know now. But I find it interesting that I have been here for months. And this is the first time I've met anybody. Man, it should not be that way. This church is only as loving as the, the least loving Lincoln here. We know that? So let's all do our part as folks come in looking for hope in life to show them hospitality here and, and maybe eventually even in our own homes as, as you come together and get to know folks. He goes on to talk more about service. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards 
of God's varied grace. This is a good reminder that when we serve each other, it's not, it, it's not really us in our own power. It's God has given you as a believer a spiritual gift, if not more than one. Okay? Ephesians 4 is one place that lists them. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. Talks about different spiritual gifts. Everybody has one, and it's this gift from God. And God says, I gave that to you to use it, to bless others. He goes on to talk about two different kinds of gifts. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. I think about this one a lot. If you, if you do any kind of teaching in the church, whether it's here on Sunday or in a small group or a, a ministry out there to other believers, he says, whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoa. James says we're going to give an account to God one day for how we teach. That's a, that's a heavy deal in, in my mind. And, and what it means is that we can't be frivolous with God's word. When we come up here, it's got to be not about my ideas or something I cook up. It's got to be God's word. God has an inspired word called the Bible. And if we're not teaching that, we're off track. That's a, a responsibility and a privilege. And I tell you, there's no morning of the week where I feel weaker than Sunday morning. I talk to Carolyn about it often when, and when we pray together. And, and when I drive in every Sunday morning, I'm on the phone with Rick. Rick can't be here because of health issues. But we pray every Sunday and every week. It's the same old line. He, he probably gets tired of hearing it. Rick, I feel so weary, so, so empty. So like if God does not show up, this is just going to be this huge waste of time. Please pray for God to do it. God to speak his word. Why? Because it's, it's His work. It's, it's Him working in us, whatever your spiritual gift is. And when we grab onto that, it makes us dependent. Whoever serves, another kind of gift, whoever's serving others in tangible ways. Don't just serve, but serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. As you're serving, don't try to do it in your own power. Look to God and say, God, as I, as I go take this meal or, or make this package or write this card or, or whatever, we're going to talk about some opportunities later. Pray, Lord, let your strength flow through me to these people I'm serving so that they have an encounter with you. And you know what happens when we serve in dependence on him and the gifts he's given us? It all goes to God's glory. Last part of 11 here. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.